You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Trade dominates the news these days. Okay, well, maybe not every day. But even with the midterm elections, the Mueller investigation, and a looming government shutdown, trade as an international issue is in the headlines with remarkable frequency. There's the negotiation of an updated North American trade agreement, which the new Congress will have to vote on, a multitude of trade disputes between the U.S. and China, including tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese goods, and an uneasy trade truce between the U.S. and Europe. By the way, I highly recommend episode one of the Zeitgeist for more on that latter topic. The point, though, is that you might have to go back to the original NAFTA in 1993 to find a time when trade similarly gripped America's national debate, or perhaps the 1980s when many in the United States feared Japan's rising economic might and sought to limit Japanese steel and other exports to the U.S. On December 1st, President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping met during the G20 summit in Argentina, and they agreed, it seems, to put the economic disputes on ice. No raising of U.S. tariffs from 10% to 25% in return for a Chinese commitment to buy an unspecified amount of U.S. products, and an agreement to start talks on China's intellectual property, technology transfer, and cyber policies. And they gave their negotiators 90 days to sort that out. If it happens, it goes down as one of the largest deals ever made. Emphasis on the if there, because each item on that list would normally take months and even years to resolve. It's fair to say that the issues surrounding China's role in the global economy are going to be with us for some time to come. So how can Washington address the challenges from the Chinese state capitalist system? As my colleague Peter Rashish put it, a bilateral approach won't be enough for the U.S. to induce Beijing to change. That will only happen if the White House works with the European Union, Japan, Australia, Canada, Mexico, and other like-minded countries to build an enduring common front. In this episode of The Zeitgeist, Peter and I talk with one of the foremost German experts on the transatlantic trade and economic relationship, Dr. Stormy Annika Mildner of the German Federation of Industries. We dive into the German and European views of the international trade issues that confront us, what the U.S. and European common interests are with regard to China, and what we can and should be doing together. Please join us. We're here today with Dr. Stormy Annika Mildner, who's the head of foreign economic policy at the Federation of German Industries, also known as the BDI. Uh, Now, um, uh, you are also at the SWP, the Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik, uh, as well as at the German Council on Foreign Relations. And I read somewhere that you're a non-resident fellow at a place called the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. So it's great to have you back here today. It's wonderful being here. If if I could start off maybe by asking one general question. This is a time in international relations of great friction. Um, including friction between friends and allies. Now, President Trump uh, makes no secret of his unhappiness with the trading relationship between the United States and Europe, for example. And he usually singles out Germany when uh, when he expresses those complaints. What is the effect in Germany... Um, of these kinds of constant attacks and almost daily friction related to trade? Is it changing the way Germans look at trade, in your view? And, and if so, in what direction? 
So these were tons of questions put into one question. <laughs> well, we try to and, load them all. Yeah, I know. Um, but I mean, f first of all, what we should not forget when we talk about the transatlantic relationship and also the German-U.S. relationship is that it is built on decades and centuries um, of a very solid relationship, which is not just um, Trump and trade, but it's um, it's the people um, and um, and networks which have grown over decades, and that remains very, very strong. Um, if you look at polling data here in the United States, the image of Germany is extremely positive. And the other way around, it's also very, very positive. So um, apart from this, um, I very much agree that over the last um, two years, um, trade has become very different, or let's say the um, discussions about trade have become very, very different, much more conflictual. Um, trade has become so much more of a foreign policy um, issue than it was before. Um, and now to your question, has, has it changed um, the view um, of Germans? I would not say so. Um, it ha trade has been um, in the public realm for quite a while um, because of the TTIP um, negotiations. And as, as we all remember, there was not always an easy discussion um, we had. And there was quite a, bit of, right. quite a bit of opposition in Germany. I mean, Germany was one of the three countries where the majority of people were rather skeptical um, towards uh, TTIP, if not, say, in opposition to it. So what might have changed a little bit since then is that... Um, the um, the rhetoric coming from the United States reminded us how important trade really is and the transatlantic relationship really is, and so one could even say that the um, the support for a transatlantic agreement has increased um, in comparison to the time when we negotiated um, TTIP. Stormy, uh, looking at another important uh, German trading partner, there does seem to be growing concern in Germany about China's trade and domestic economic policies. Yes, Germany maintains a strong trade surplus with China, but Chinese acquisitions of German high-tech companies and the Made in China 2025 program uh, to achieve leadership in a number of uh, manufacturing areas seems to be leading to a rethink. Uh, what, what kind of actions do you think are necessary uh, to respond to the Chinese economic challenge? So first of all, as we all know, trade is extremely important um, for, for Germany, both exports as well as imports, but investment as well. Um, outgoing investment as well as ingoing investment is extremely important. Um, and we also benefit from Chinese investment. So um, Germany and our economy um, lives from global value chains, globalization, free, and now that's important, rules-based um, trade. Um, what's not good for us, um, not good for our economy, not good for jobs, um, and so on, is um, an unlevel playing field globally. And while I would say a few years ago, we were all still hoping that China would eventually come around and play by the rules um, and become an, an open, more market economy, I think this hope has been disappointed um, to some extent. And a reality check um, has, um, has set in um, also with a lot of companies. Um, I'm not saying that the Chinese market will not always be important to us. It will, um, and it is an attractive market. Um, however, um, we do need to look at instruments um, which ensure that China plays by the rules. Um, and um, this brings me to the issue of um, 
government subsidies, for example, or state-owned enterprises, um, forced technology transfer, and lots of other issues. And our global rules are not sufficient right now um, to ensure that a level playing field um, exists. And uh, therefore, we need to think what we can do. May it be investment screening? Um, may it be competition? Um, laws and instruments um, or instruments uh, like government procurement. Um, we need to ask for more transparency, more transparency on, on ownership and certainly more transparency on finances. Do, do those instruments include tariffs? Because I, I've, I've got to say, listening to your description, it, it, with which I agree, but it sounded, it sounded very consistent with American views. But uh, is it in the instruments that we differ perhaps across the Atlantic? I would say that there is um, a great overlap in our analysis. Um, we see the same big problems, um, but there are some differences in how to deal with these problems. So unilateral tariffs um, are not seen to be the answer. Or let's, let, let, let me put it this way. We want to counter um, the Chin Chinese unfair practices, um, not by becoming China. Right? Um, we want to um, save our open social market economy with all the benefits it offers um, to our people, um, while at the same time um, ensuring that others play by, by the rules. And that means um, that we need a strong WTO with strong rules and a strong enforcement mechanism. And unilaterally implemented tariffs um, are, from our point of view, not the right way to go. And, and also looking at history, I can really not point at any period when m protectionism has actually led to more market access or openness. Quite the contrary, I see a lot of time periods when more market access has led to more market access. Uh, you mentioned global trade rules and their importance. Uh, it, it sort of plays against type given the President's America First rhetoric, but uh, the U.S., EU, and Japanese trade ministers have met several times since uh, the end of last year uh, in a trilateral process which is aimed exactly at that, at trying to develop some new trade rules. China's not mentioned, but it seems clear that that's the main focus of these meetings. How do you think these talks are going? Uh, is it possible for Germany and Europe to cooperate with an America First administration on trade policy to develop new rules? And what do you think a successful outcome of this trilateral process would look like? Now, I think it's not just possible to cooperate. It's an absolute must, um, because there will not be a reform of global trade rules without the United States. And to be frank, um, there there is a lot to reform. Um, the WTO ha has great rules, but they do not reflect trade of the 21st century, and also not protectionism of the 21st century. So this is an area where we do have to work together, also with Japan, and then getting more countries um, on board. And I think that um, a lot has already come out of um, the trilateral dialogue. For example, um, the, uh, the proposal on notifications in the WTO. As you, as you know, countries do have to notify um, subsidies, for example, and there are several countries, not just China, but several others as well, who do not always um, follow their notification obligations. And without notification, you don't have transparency, and then enforcement also becomes tricky. And the joint, the joint proposal on no notification is and with 
connected with enforcement mechanisms is really a right step in the in the in, in the right direction. And I think the uh, proposal on the dispute settlement uh, procedure and the appellate body, which the EU just tabled a couple of days ago, I think that could be a good basis for another trilateral um, initiative. Um, the tricky thing will then, however, be um, to get other countries on board, um, not just, I mean, Certainly also at one point or another, if you want a WTO reform, countries like China and India and South Africa who have been more on, on, on the blocking side of reforms certainly have to, have, to, have to be convinced as well. So it's not just about the U.S. wanting to create leverage. You do think it's about trying to take what the three countries do and insert that into the WTO process, find some friends, and get a real change to the rules there. Yeah, I think so. Otherwise, they um, they would not invest that much much time because it is a very time-consuming um, process. Um, w with regard to dispute settlement um, and the appellate body, I think the verdict is still open because um, we are still waiting for a, a reply. But with regard to notification and also the definition of subsidies and state-owned enterprises, um, I think there's a great willingness um, to reform reform the system. Stormy, you know that uh, the president has uh, asked for an investigation in, into whether uh, U.S. imports of cars and car parts uh, somehow threaten uh, U.S. national security. At the latest, uh, the report's supposed to come back in February, and the president has mentioned the possibility of putting 25 percent tariffs uh, on German cars and, and other, uh, other, other cars uh, from Europe and from Japan and elsewhere. I, it might seem a bit fanciful to put uh, tariffs for national security reasons on Germany, which is a NATO ally, uh, but uh, that's where we are. Do you think these tariffs are coming? And is there anything Germany and the EU can do to stop that happening? So most of the indicators we are hearing, um, both in DC as well as in, in the EU, is um, that such tariff might, tar tariffs might very well come. Um, I mean, first of all, the report needs to be tabled, then the president needs to decide on the report. Most likely, there are going to be different options in the report, tariffs or quotas. Um, but um, looking at the last few weeks and months, um, I think there's a pretty high chance that, um, that the report will, uh, will propose tariffs uh, also on EU um, car um, exports. And um, there would be let's put it this way, more than unfortunate. Um, I don't see any security threat um, created by, by German cars. Quite the contrary, what I'm seeing is um, that German car companies um, are contributing to the U.S. Um, economy by creating economic growth uh, or contributing to economic growth, but also by creating jobs um, here in the United States and also contributing to exports from the United States. So I actually see a big, big contribution by car companies and really not a threat. Well, and, and th you know, one of the arguments, I think, is about the U.S. industrial base. At least that's that was part of the justification for the steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, but as you say, you know, foreign auto manufacturers who are investing in the United States and producing here are also contributing to that uh, to that d domestic base, and it's hard to imagine having that one thing um, without the other, which is an open trading environment in which you can export cars from the United States 
to Europe or elsewhere just as easily as you can invest in the United States. Aren't these two things connected, really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, investment and, and trade go hand in hand, and it's um, it, it's silly to see them as, se as uh, separate things. And um, all those those companies are um, also uh, contributing to training, tra training and education here. I mean, they have um, they are participating in dual education programs, um, and and that is also an, an important contribution with regard to um, skills development here. If I asked you to pick your poison, would you rather have tariffs or quotas? What would you say, or are those both just bad things? Oh, both are bad. Um, <laughs> So it's like, what well, I mean, it's um, I, I quotas go against the rules of the WTO. So it's um, like choose your lesser evils. I mean, it's, it's it, it, neither, neither is good. I mean, if we if the goal is to to be to be competitive, to be able to co compete on global markets, um, if the goal is to um, create a level playing field, um, to put something. Um, or to convince China to play by the rules, I mean, you, you need to pick your allies. Um, and, and, and the United States and the EU have a very special relationship. We are so interconnected, um, both on trades as, as well as investment. And instead of fighting with each other, um, we should, um, I mean, bundle our strengths. And, um, yeah, I... That's my answer to. <laughs> well, on a friendlier note, perhaps the U.S. and the EU have been uh, negotiating ways to reduce trade barriers between each other since the July visit of uh, European Commission President Juncker uh, to the White House. The talks so far have been focused on aligning regulations, but eliminating tariffs has have also been uh, discussed. What do you think the priorities of these talks should be? Uh, how much ambition should they have? And can we expect one day to end up with something like the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership that was being negotiated under the Obama administration until it stalled in the summer of 2016? Mm -hmm. So, first of all, what is on the table right now or what is scoped because no official negotiations are currently yet taking place is fundamentally different from what was negotiated under TTIP. TTIP was an extremely ambitious project, um, which was also uh, be supposed to be kind of the standard for all future trade agreements. And it had everything trade-related in there, um, from regulatory cooperation, government procurement, digital, I mean, a really, really big big package um, so so that is not on the table right now and the um, and the political environment um, and and also I have to say the domestic uh, environment and public opinion just doesn't allow allow for such such an approach so what is currently on the table are three um, baskets or three pillars and the first one is um, a, an agreement on industrial goods tariffs um, and that is um, I mean if you compare it to TTIP, very limited um, and, uh, and in a sense a little bit disappointing, but given the circum circumstances we are currently in, um, it's, it, it would be a good approach to set a positive agenda. Um, sorry, you said it's disappointing. Is that because it doesn't lower tariffs enough or because the scope of it is not uh, the broad scope, enough? Because the scope. Um, most of the barriers in transatlantic um, trade are not tariffs anymore. Yes, mm -hmm. there are some tariff peaks, and it definitely makes sense to get rid of them, also in cars. Um, but really, I mean... Uh, 
non-tariff barriers, government procurement, um, these are the issues where you see it's still a lot of barriers, and, and that is not part of at least that pillar of that deal. So um, ha having said that, um, from our point of view, it also doesn't make any sense to just pick um, individual sec industrial sectors or exclude some sectors, um, such an in industrial trade goods industrial goods trade agreement um, needs to fulfill the requirements of the WTO, and that means substantially all trade, um, and it would therefore also need to include cars. Right, just a point there for those who aren't experts uh, on this, and that, that is, you can't just negotiate a single sector uh, agreement that's under right. the WTO rules. It has to be broader. Um, yeah, so, that's right. so that means that this sort of cherry picking uh, approach is ruled out from the very start. I think that's just worth pointing out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the, the general agreement on tariffs and trade under the WTO requires um, that substantially all trade needs to be covered. Um, and the reason for this is to kind of set the road to multilateralize free trade agreements eventually, or at least to prevent that they have large uh, trade diverting effects. Mm -hmm. um, so the second pillar, um, that is regulatory cooperation. Um, this is not to be um, binding, more on a voluntary, uh, let's say, transactional basis um, outside of, a, of an agreement. So there's also a fundamental difference to, to TTIP where regulatory cooperation was supposed to be part um, of the agreement. And um, let's say that some are saying that those could be easy hanging fruits, but there's really nothing easy and low hanging in regulatory cooperation. <laughs> so it might take a little while. Um, there are some areas which are more promising than others, but uh, having said that, it certainly makes a lot of sense to talk about um, non-tariff barriers um, and address those through regulatory cooperation. And the third pillar, the third ba basket, are WTO reforms. So anything which come with regard to rules, transparency, notification, and dispute settlement. And in these, the scoping takes place in all three three tracks right now. Uh, maybe to come back to the dispute settlement, because you you mentioned that uh, that the European Union has put some new ideas on the table, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about that if we could. But but also I think that gets at in a way um, the heart of the U.S. approach, which has been to impose, for example, national security based uh, tariffs, which has even been challenged uh, not only by the European Union but by China uh, as well. So. How crucial then is the existing dispute settlement mechanism uh, and any changes in addressing those other parts, uh, those other pillars of the of the trade agenda? Mm. Um, so first of all, having an enforcement mechanism in the WTO is essential, <laughs> right. Um, right? I mean, you d apart from everything what's going on right now, it was also essential since the since 1995, since the WTO has been created, um, to address trade conflicts um, because it um, from from trying to solve trade conflicts in a diplomatic um, gunboat diplomacy way, um, it, it allows the settlement of, of, of conflicts in a um, more unpolitical, legalized um, point of view. 
Um, so that's that that that's really and and it offers an enforcement um, mechanism for the enforcement. It's extremely important to have a well-functioning dispute settlement um, procedure. And as as you saw um, in 2018, the number of disputes skyrocketed. Um, and um, the the U.S. Um, tariffs on steel and aluminum stand at the center of this, but there are tons of other conflicts on anti-dumping cases, safeguard cases, um, and many other conflictual issues. And for that, a strong, um, a strong dispute settlement procedure is really vital, and that includes the appellate body. And this is where, where currently the, the conflict lies, because for um, any case to be settled by the appellate body, you need three appellate body members. And if the, well, if no new appointments take place at the end of next year, um, the appellate body will cease to function. And um, that will lead to disputes hanging in the air, air without a solution, really. And that would fundamentally undermine the WTO and its effectiveness. Story, one of the areas which is really um, still the wild west in the global economy is 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 digital uh, trade. Uh, we did see a strong outcome in the USMCA, the new NAFTA on that issue, where they essentially uh, cut and paste a lot that was going to be in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Do you think that these discussions between the U.S. and the EU are, are fertile ground for agreeing um, very modern uh, rules on, on the digital economy, which will uh, help both the U.S. and the EU to uh, continue to be at the forefront? Hmm. I think right now digital issues are not at the forefront of the transatlantic um, discussions because they are, seem to be more pressing issues. It's very much a 1970s <laughs> agenda, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, in parts it is. Um, but um, in the WTO, it's a really important issue. So there's one of the um, new initiatives um, which are, I have to say, are gaining more and more traction and more and more countries are joining um, the talks on on uh, digital trade, um, and the U.S. is participating in the talks. Um, that's very promising, um, and that's the first step, really. And then you know, maybe to, to, to skip from the digital to the overall um, uh, state of the e economy, uh, it, how do you look from a German perspective at the, the state of the German economy f in for the future, uh, that is not just digitalization, which is sort of a buzzword in German policymaking circles, um, but also for developing uh, the links between digitalization and manufacturing and new economic opportunities that are going to present themselves. Is this, you know, is this something Germany is struggling with and, uh, and what is the way forward in your view? So digitalization has a huge impact on trade as well, yeah. right? I mean, a large part of services trade is already today digital, and we don't yet have the um, necessary rules um, for this. So it is very high on, on the German trade agenda um, to talk about digital trade as well. Um, but is it talking about it, or is there is there a way forward? Uh, you know, well, how, how far I mean, along? I mean, participating in the, um, I mean, <laughs> as, as we all know, 
Germany doesn't do trade policy on its own anymore. It's the European Commission right. who is doing that. Um, so in, 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 in a sense, um, uh, Germany is feeding in its ideas and the Commission policy and digital trade ranks very high um, on, on, the on, on the Commission's um, agenda. And it's also part of the trade negotiations. Um, may it be um, with New Zealand or Australia or the other ones which are currently, currently going on. Um, having said that, um, it's... Um, you, there are also different approaches with regard to privacy um, in different countries, and that is certainly going to be a stumbling block um, also, also in the future. Um, but since you also said how that all plays in to the German economy and how, how important trade is and where we are going, um, we know that, as I said earlier, we are very trade dependent. Um, every second job in industry depends on trade. Um, so trade has a very positive um, impact. But we are also very, um, very dependent on trade, mm -hmm. right? And so there is no economic policy separate from trade policy, no, not if you put it no, that way. Not really, but um, the we have a very big trade surplus, current account surplus. And the other side, I mean, the other um, coin, the other side of the coin um, is the capital balance. Uh, meaning right. that a lot of capital is flowing out of Germany. And um, to uh, we do have investment deficits in, in infrastructure, um, in soft as well as hard, um, as well as in education and training. And to stay competitive over the, over the future, we do have to do our own homework as well, also with regard to um, regulations um, and the environment to do business at home. And um, that is something we definitely um, need, need, need to address. So trade is good, exports and impo imports is good, but investment at, at home is also extremely necessary. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for joining us uh, today. Um, uh, this has been Dr. Stormy Annika Mildner uh, from the uh, BDI, the German Federation of Industries, talking with us on the Zeitgeist about trade, which... You know, there are no two areas of the world that are more closely linked economically than the United States and Europe. So the, 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 the points you've raised and the issues you've identified are going to be with us uh, for, for years to come. And they're going to be central in shaping how the transatlantic uh, community um, uh, adjusts to new economic circumstances and uh, ensures the prosperity uh, of its people. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist from the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Be sure to check AICGS.org slash podcast for notes from today's episode. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please leave a review. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at AICGS and Instagram at AICGSDC. Auf Wiederhören. 